For those of you who know what a meme is, a meme is going around the internet right now, and it has a lot of different pictures behind it, but typically the same words. And it is this, quite apropos perhaps for our recent history of our church. So today in church, a guy in a dress tried to drown me. And I kid you not, my family just stood there taking pictures. <laughs> okay, those of you who remember a couple weeks ago, we baptized uh, Thomas by immersion. It was like, wow, okay, that's pretty heavy. I asked the kids if they, what they thought about baptism. It's scary, right? Okay. So anyway, today what I want to do is I want to start a message. I was actually going to preach this uh, one Sunday, but I, I've evolved into two. And today I want to preach a theology of baptism, what's the big deal, and next week, I'll preach what? We baptize babies. And part of my story is that I came from a Baptist background and now have embraced Anglicanism. And I want to lead you a little bit on that journey, theologically, to understand what baptism is. Today's the, that's the greatest part of my message. And next week, looking more fully at the question of why we would baptize infants uh, along with adults uh, in, in our practices. I start off by saying I I'm glad that God called me to be a minister rather than a politician. <laughs> uh, I, I never would have survived cutthroat politics for a couple reasons. One is uh, just the idea that I'm, not, uh, I'm, I'm sort of a principled person and I hang tight to my principles and I would never be able to fall in line with politicians who have to follow the party line. And the party boss stands there and makes everybody get in line and say the same thing. I could not do that. Where do I get that from? I, I get it from my father. Uh, my father, in his last 10 years of active uh, public life, was a politician. He was in the state legislature of Maine, and he absolutely loved it. And he was a very strong Democrat. Uh, he believed in the little man, and yet at the same time, his party bosses could not count on him for his vote. <laughs> they had to make sure that Carl Smith was in line before they could count on his vote. And he was a person who was pro-life. I'm probably closer to my father's politics than uh, people who are in the extremes of my party, uh, if that makes sense to you. We're probably closer to each other. He's not living anymore, but we were closer to each other uh, in our own politics, even though we were in different parties than we were to the extremities. So anyway, I wouldn't survive in that world because, number one, I, I vote my principles and I am a chip off the old block in that sense. The second reason is I've been willing to change my mind on a lot of significant issues. And if you live in a world of politics, you change your mind, you're dead, right? You're unelectable, and it's unacceptable, unforgivable if you somehow change your mind. And over the years of my own pilgrimage, <clears throat> maybe just for the reason that, primarily I guess for the reason that I don't have confidence that I know everything right at this very moment in time. Anybody in that category? Take, take over. <laughs> you, you're confident that you know everything right now? No. Oh, you don't. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure what you were saying, Jerry. <laughs> but there's a sense in which I know I don't know everything, which means that as a lifelong learner, there are going to be things that I learn, ways of stating theology, ways of thinking, ways of practicing that are better than what I know right now and do right now. And therefore, I want to have a posture and a discipline, a spiritual discipline in my life of repentance that I'm willing to say, I set that aside, I embrace something new to the glory of God. And there's no shame in doing that. There's no fault in doing that. But if you do that in the world of politics, you're dead meat. <laughs> if you do in the world of religion, sometimes you're dead meat. But that's my conviction, and that's where I come from. So I would not survive in that world. 
Now, some of you who served on the Rector Search Committee are probably saying right now, we didn't know that about you, Father Carl. <laughs> what have we done to our church? And I say, yes, you did. You know I came from a Baptist background, and as I came from that Baptist background and now embrace Anglicanism, you know I changed my mind on a lot of very significant topics for me. One was the rule of the church by bishops. Another one was apostolic succession. Another one, the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. But the fourth one, infant baptism, which is what our topic is going to be over the next uh, uh, couple weeks. Today, our focus is primarily on the question, what is the big deal about baptism? And I would challenge you to think that baptism is really a big deal. And I want to state these things for you, for your encouragement, for your edification, and also for your invitation, so that you might be aware of the importance of this for your own personal lives. And to a certain extent, if you get the understanding of baptism right, even if your baptism occurred long ago, you start thinking about it right in proper theological ways, it'll save your life. It will save your life. And I'll explain that more in a moment. But also to realize that I, I, st I bring this to you for your invitation, for those of you who have not been baptized, to think about being baptized because it is part of your conversion experience. But for those of you who have been baptized, to remember your baptism and to live as individuals who are baptized, which is, makes you and marks you as something different in our world. I'm doing this today because this is the uh, first Sunday of Epiphany. It's also the day we recognize the baptism of the Lord. And as you recognize this morning, we recited that passage in our readings this morning. And uh, I find that to be critical as well as the conversion of, uh, of, the, of uh, Cornelius and his household. And what's beautiful about the passage in Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 is that right in the middle of Peter's sermon, the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples and he says, well, what prevents us from baptizing them? And it's like, are you kidding me? The Holy Spirit interrupted his sermon? Couldn't he have waited till the end, <laughs> right? I would, I'd be all upset if he interrupted my sermon and started, everybody started speaking in tongues. <laughs> I would not, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I find that to be a fascinating text that right in the middle of his sermon, the Holy Spirit came in with power. And it shows you really a dynamic time in that life of the church in that image. I have a lament about the church and a lament about church unity. And my lament is this. The sacraments that we observe, and I call them sacraments. I used to call them ordinances. Ordinances sort of meant that they're just symbols. But sacraments give the sense that they're, they bring some grace. The grace of God comes to us in these moments of, of, uh, of receiving the Lord's Supper and receiving the Eucharist. God meets us there. And in our baptism, he's present. And the Spirit comes upon us in that moment. And my lament is, God gave these to be instruments of unity for the church. When you are baptized, it's not just the one individual who professes faith in the creed and says, I believe, I believe, I believe. It's the entire body of Christ rehearses that together and says, we believe, right? We believe in the Father. We believe in the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And we confess our faith together. And I think there's been a dramatic change in the in this church's story over the number of years where we've sort of taken baptism and changed it into an individual personal event where in a large sense it was a corporate uh, public sense of what baptism was. But our baptism is a profession of faith that we have in common. And the Eucharist for us is an identification that we all partake of one body, one blood, that's broken for us and shed for us and one Lord Jesus Christ and we are made one in him. 
And it's a unifying theme for all the body of Christ. My lament is this. The devil has worked a wonder in the instruments of unity and turned them into instruments of division and brokenness in the body of Christ. Contention. There's more contention among church and denominations over baptism and the Lord's Supper than almost any other doctrine of the church. What do we baptize infants? Do we baptize adults? Do we baptize our immersion? Do we do it at what point? You know, all these arguments. In the Eucharist, is it transubstantiation where things change into the body and blood of Christ? Or is it just meaningless in the sense it's just a symbol? Or somewhere in between, and there are all kinds of positions in between, and everybody's fighting over the instruments of unity. And those very instruments that are designed to bring us together and make us one have become instruments of division. And we've been foolish because we've given form more significance than substance. I was a Baptist, and uh, coming from that non-denominational background where you had believer baptism, what I found fascinating about my own personal experience, and I can say this, this is true of me, my major statement was not so much a positive theology about baptism as it was I was against infant baptism. And the emphasis there is you're against infant baptism. We only baptize believers by immersion, and that was our statement. But there wasn't really a deep theology related to what baptism meant. Most people couldn't tell you what baptism meant. And it certainly didn't tell you what the creed we read a moment ago. Well, we're going to read. We read it a moment ago in the elder service. <laughs> I'm blending. Uh, uh, baptism for the remission of sins. It wasn't that for sure. And so what I find fascinating is that baptism, historically from the early church, was, a, uh, was part of your conversion. It was part of your conversion experience. You, you repented, you believed, and you were, you, you were baptized, all in one almost synthetic event. And baptism was the moment in which you called upon the name of the Lord. And what I find the emphasis in uh, my former Baptist circles was you emphasize conversion, and you place in the place of baptism the sinner's prayer. And somebody says the sinner's prayer, and they accept Jesus Christ, they Maybe there's a specific prayer they pray, and they have this sinner's prayer, and once they've done that, they're saved, and when they get around to it, they should think about getting baptized. And baptism could be months, years, whatever, later, and it's not really that significant for the individual in their discipleship, which to me is very contrary to Scripture itself and contrary to good theology, and I'll talk to you a little bit about my conversion on that point. But what baptism had, has changed from is an individual personal thing to something. It's changed from something that was community and, uh, and, and public to, from something, to something that's sort of private and whenever I get around to it type of theology. So what I want to do this morning is to lay out for you a couple things that sort of lead to my sermon next week, which is on infant baptism and why we would baptize babies and realize that we don't just baptize babies. Sometimes we, we hear it presented do you baptize believers by immersion or do you baptize babies? And the answer is both. The answer is both. As long as we're an evangelistic church and reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to be baptizing people who make decisions for Jesus Christ, right? Uh, but we also recognize as a covenanted family that we also bring children into that covenant of faith as part of their family. So let me talk to you a little bit about sacraments, and I want to talk to you about what, what are the gospel images that are involved with our baptism, and hopefully this will resonate with your spirit and instruct you into its significance for our own personal discipleship to Jesus Christ. So what are the sacraments? Basically, there are two sacraments instituted by Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper. If you go to uh, our theology for the Anglican Church, we have the creeds, 
We also have a document that was written in 1571 called the 39 Articles. And they're in the back of the prayer book. If you've not looked there before, they're there. They're listed out. And, and around Article 25, 26, 27, there's uh, instruction on what the sacraments mean, what, the, what baptism means, and what the Lord's Supper means. And I would encourage you to, to look at it and observe our documents that relate to our, our uh, church. There are two sacraments for the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're stating this in the Anglican Church in contrast to the Catholic Church, which held to seven uh, sacraments. And where the Anglican Church differs with, from the Catholic Church is saying the sacraments are ones that preach the gospel. The gospel is embedded in the theology of the event itself. When we baptize someone, the gospel is being preached because it's the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can see it even in the picture of immersion. Somebody dies, somebody's buried, and somebody rises from the dead. And you have this image of the gospel preached. And the gospel is also preached in the Eucharist because we are partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, the body that was shed for us, the, the body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us, and we receive Christ into our life, and we receive grace from him at that moment. Jesus instituted both of these and commanded them for his church to follow. He instituted the baptism in two events. One would be his baptism itself, where he himself said, we, it is necessary to do this so that we might fulfill all righteousness. And so he identified with, with John himself and was baptized. But at the end of his life, he also commissioned his church in what we call the Great Commission to go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And so you find baptism to be right in the center of discipleship. It's the beginning point of discipleship for someone who's coming to Christ. Christ instituted baptism and commanded his church to observe it as a right. Eucharist is the same way. When it comes to the Eucharist, that word the Eucharist just means good uh, good words or good thanks. And it's, it's a word for thanksgiving. And so in the middle of the Eucharist, it says when he took the bread, he gave thanks. When he took the cup, he gave thanks. That's the word Eucharistos. We call it the Eucharist, but it just means giving thanks. Lord's Supper, same thing. Uh, but Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he was telling his disciples, as often as you take this, do it in remembrance of me. So it's a remembrance. It's looking forward to the death of Christ. And he gave this to his church and his words of institution is something we repeat every Sunday when I offer the Eucharist. On the night that our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he gave it to his disciples. He took the cup and he gave it to his disciples. And that word of institution is something that we observe. And it preaches the gospel for us. And those are our two sacraments. We have the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3. And I'm, let me read it for you just again. It's a beautiful pastoral scene. It has so much rich theology attached to what occurs at that moment in time. And I don't have it up on the slide, but let me just read it to you again. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's the, it's the start of his, his, his uh, three years. We, we sometimes call it three years, but the only way we know that is from the Gospel of John. It never says he had a three-year ministry. He observed four Passovers with his disciples, and that's how we know at least three years. But anyway, there's four thoughts I want to give you from this passage related to the baptism. And you have the scene there, beautiful stained glass of, of a dove. Even over here we have that. So what do we want to point out from this baptismal scene? First of all, it was purposeful in intent. Jesus went to Galilee, to the Jordan, to be baptized by John. This was something that he had to do. It was something that was part of his pilgrimage. It was something that he did in obedience to the Father. And so it was very purposeful. He was going to be baptized. It was intentional. It was providential in its implementation. Thus, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. All the righteous requirements by God of God were fulfilled in this. It was a command of God. And in some beautiful way, the forerunner, John, and the Messiah who was to come, the Son of God who was coming into the world, were linked together in their announcement of the kingdom of God. And the ministry of John, the ministry of Jesus, were linked through Christ identifying himself with the baptism of John. So it's providential in its implementation. It's picturesque in its imagery. And when I think about that, you want to think about, you have the scene of the Holy Spirit, but it's one of those passages where you really have some clarity on the Trinity of God. Uh, there are some groups out there that believe in modalism, which basically says there's one God and there's only one person in the Godhead, and that, Godhead's, that God person sometimes is Father, sometimes he's Son, sometimes he's Spirit. Uh, sometimes I'm acting as a priest, sometimes I'm acting as a father, sometimes I'm acting as a grandfather, sometimes I'm acting as a fool, I guess, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know, but, uh, different modes of being, but that's not how God is. In this one instance, you have clarity that there are three persons in the Godhead. The Son of God is being baptized by John. The Spirit of God is sent from the Father and lights upon Jesus and anoints him as a separate person, and the Father speaks from heaven to the audience, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so you have three persons engaged in this activity along with all the other people who are observing, the son who's being baptized, the spirit who comes down and rests on Jesus, and the father speaking his pleasure from heaven regarding his son. And so when you think about Trinitarianism and somebody says, no, there's only one person of Godhead. No, there's three persons, and it's evident here in texts like this as we see it. And it's beautiful in its picture. And it's proclamatory in its influence. When God spoke from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I well pleased. This has rich significance. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he's speaking in this text to the crowd, telling them, listen to him. This is my son. I'm pleased with him. He's fulfilling all righteousness. Listen to my son. I'm not sure if you've studied comparative gospels or not. But there's one gospel in which it says, you are my beloved son, and I'm whom I'm well pleased. It speaks directly to Jesus. And sometimes you ask, well, which did the Father do? Did he speak directly to Jesus, or did he speak to the crowd? And I would say both. They all understood that Jesus was the anointed one. He's the Messiah of God. He's the Son of God coming into the world. And God's pleasure was upon him in his obedience and in the ministry that he was undertaking to be our suffering servant. So we have two sacraments initiated. The second thought about sacraments, they're a profession of faith. When we 
come to the sacrament and come to baptism, we're professing our faith in Jesus Christ. And from the very early years of the church, there was a, a implementation of a creedal statement where when you were baptized, you were baptized in a threefold statement. I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And they called that triune immersion where you were baptized one, two, three times with those three creedal statements attached to it. Our Apostles' Creed that we have in the church is a product of this baptismal formula that was spoken at baptism. And it's a profession that not just the individual says as they're being baptized, but we all say it with them, right? Remember a couple weeks ago when we had the baptisms? We said it with the people who were being baptized because this is our profession together. It's not a solo thing. It's not just me and God. It's the body of Christ that he died for. And so there's a sense of uh, profession of faith. I come from a tradition where baptism was almost only a profession of faith, and that was its full significance. Listen to this statement. Uh, I was part of a church in Ohio, and uh, this elder was leading a person up to be baptized, and he wanted to make a clear statement, anti-Catholic, anti-whatever-else <laughs> statement, and he said this, and this is a direct quote, now I want you to know that baptism doesn't really mean anything spiritually. It doesn't have any spiritual meaning. This is just a chance for this man to profess his faith and for us to be obedient to Christ. And when you look at the theology of baptism in Scripture, that's a very, very shallow statement. It was more a statement against certain things than it was for something. He didn't really have a positive uh, understanding of baptism itself. Our baptism is a profession of faith. It is that, but it is so much more. So what else is it? The sacraments are visible and effectual signs of God's grace to us. Uh, there's a statement in the 39 articles, I think it's a, a, well, a beautiful statement, where it says, as we are partaking of these sacraments, God works invisibly in us as we are partaking of them. And the grace of God is received, and we, we, we are participating in faith, and God is there. God is present in that experience. Our language of sacraments are their outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual grace. You have external factors. We have uh, substances. We're, we're washed in water. We have bread. We have wine. And those physical things are realities that we're partaking of and, and participating in. But in with those elements, we have spiritual realities taking place. When you're taking into the water, you're identifying with water that Christ has used, God has used from centuries to wash and to purify. And you have this sense of participation. And the bread and the wine is not just bread and wine. It is the real presence of Christ. It's not changed into the, what, the body and blood of Christ, but he is present. And for us who have faith, we are receiving Christ and his grace again and again. And I, 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 I'm at a point in time where if I go a week, if I don't have a Eucharist on a Sunday, if I go to another type of church and don't have the Lord's Supper, it's like, oh, I, it's not done. Something's missing, right? It's, it's just absent. And I, I need the Eucharist. It's part of my own spirituality. Uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ was the uh, perfect illustration of physicalness coming into the world, but spirituality deeply connected to it, spiritual meaning of that incarnation of Jesus Christ. Sacrament literally means holy promise. And when we take the sacrament, we receive the holy promise of the grace of God and his visitation of us in that moment. 
The sacraments foster our faith. They encourage our faith. They're a means of present and future grace. Sometimes we have the, the prayer in our liturgy where it says, we thank you for the means of grace. And those means of grace include the sacraments. They're means of grace for us. We, we, we meet God in the sacraments as we meet him in so many other things in our sacramental understanding of life. God is present there. Article 29 of the, uh, of 25 of the uh, uh, 39 articles says, God uses the sacraments not only to quicken, but to strengthen and confirm our faith in him. Does anybody know what quicken is? Some of you women should know this word. Uh, it's an old English word. It relates to the time, the first time at which you as a woman, you know you're pregnant, but all of a sudden you feel the baby moves for the first time. It's like, that's the quickening. Ah, I felt it. It's alive. It's, and the Holy Spirit quickens us in those moments of sacrament. He not only quickens, but he strengthens and confirms our faith in him. So as you receive of Christ, and as you watch a baptism, as you are baptized, you're receiving grace, and God is quickening your faith. He's lifting you up. And so they're not merely symbols. They are more than symbols. They're, they're actually the grace of God coming to us in very powerful, powerful ways. What I want to do now is just spend a couple moments and tell you five gospel symbols, and I say gospel symbols related to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which makes us gospel-centered in our practice. But what does baptism mean for those who are followers of Jesus Christ? The first one is spiritual cleansing. It's no uh, mistake that what we use in baptism is water. And what is water used for? It's used for nourishment, but it's also used for cleansing. We constantly are using water for cleansing. And there's a sense in which water is the symbol. Christians did not invent baptism. It was something that was part of religious worship for many centuries before. And the Jews were people who participated in baptismal-type washing events, ritual events. Uh, I remember when I was in Israel, and just outside the temple walls, there's a courtyard where they sold uh, goats and whatever else for sacrifices. But right behind that, they also had some mikvah, or mikvahoth, and they're, they're baptismal sort of tanks that you can walk down into and immerse yourself, or you could have water poured over your head, but they were designed for people to wash themselves. Jesus even told one individual, go to the temple and wash yourself and then go see the priest. And these mikvah oath were set up so that people before they went to worship could have washing over themselves. And the water was purification, preparing them to go uh, to worship the Lord. This was Jewish practice. So when John's out in the wilderness, he wasn't doing something strange, bizarre thing, calling upon people to repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heavens at hand. This was part of Jewish tradition. And people flocked to him and said, yes, God is coming. The kingdom of heaven's at hand. We need to be washed. We need to be cleansed. And so when you think about baptism, baptism relates to our purification. Now, as a Baptist, I struggled with two passages. Because baptism doesn't wash away your sins. It's just a symbol of something that's happened already to you in your sinner's prayer. And Acts 2.38 says, repent. This is after Peter had preached his Pentecostal sermon. The Jews were convicted to their hearts about what the truth he'd, he presented. And they said, well, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. The way I was taught this at Baptist University and Seminary was, well, it's only the first commandment that really is significant. 
And the second one is just sort of a peripheral thing. It's almost like uh, if I tell the children to, uh, I didn't even think about this ahead of time. What can I tell them? <laughs> it would be like saying, uh, repent and have a cup of coffee for the remission of your sins. The cup of coffee doesn't remit your sins. It's the repentance that remits your sins. They're treating baptism like it's not part of the twofold command here. But it is. It's an it's a exhortation in this text. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And the clarity is there. And the second one is Acts 22.16. Paul is preaching about his own conversion, telling a, a ruler about his own conversion. And he tells about the fact that he had Ananias, who was an individual in uh, uh, Damascus, come to him, led him back to Damascus, took care of him. But P P Paul's saying, what must I do? And Ananias said to him, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. And you can see how closely related conversion, baptism, calling upon the Lord, washing away your sins, it's all one activity. It's all one event. It's not separated by months or years or whatever. Rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. Do you remember when uh, Jesus was washing his disciples' feet in John 13? Peter, Peter is such a mess. You have to love him because he's such a mess, <laughs> right? So Peter, Jesus comes to him to wash his feet, and he says, no, 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 you can't wash my feet because you're, you're the Holy One of God, and I'm, I'm just whatever. And Jesus says, I have to wash your feet. Unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Well, wash all of me. Cover the entire me. Give me a whole bath. And Jesus says, no. <laughs> you don't need a whole bath. Those who have been washed need only to be, have their feet washed. And the idea behind that was once you've been washed through your baptism, through your conversion, through your experience of salvation, you don't need to be rebaptized again. You do need a process of confession and forgiveness that you go through that where you receive uh, cleansing from those daily sins that you have, but you don't go back and be rebaptized again and again and again. It's not necessary. And so what you have here is that Peter and Paul and all these individuals, they were baptized one time, once for all, because Christ died for us and cleansed us once for all. But there's this daily need for purification, cleansing. And sometimes we do that uh, through our confession. Sometimes we just anoint ourselves with holy water of the baptism and God cleanse me, purify me. And it's clean. You're clean. So, First thought, spiritual cleansing. Second thought is new birth. New birth in Christ. We all know the story of uh, Nicodemus coming to Jesus at nighttime. He's coming to him and he's uh, secretly coming to him because he's a ruler of part of the Sanhedrin. And uh, they have a discussion. They go back and forth about requirements because uh, Nicodemus doesn't understand how new birth, birth from above, relates to physical birth from your mother. And Jesus says to him, Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, in my former days, I used to think that this born of water was related to the physical birth, the woman's birth, where you should have water in her, in her uterus and, and that would all come out. And, oh. <laughs> I've got a weak stomach. When I was a, a junior high student, they took us up, and we didn't have any instruction on sex ed or anything like that. And they took us up into the, into the stage area of the, the gymnasium, and they showed us a film on emergency childbirth. And I was the most naive, dumb, smart kid there was. <laughs> and here I am sitting there, and, and uh, this woman's giving birth to a child, an emergency child, and the water burst, and it just goes, <laughs> and I'm there, 
Oh, <laughs> I almost fainted. It was, it was awful. And so I, when I think about this text, I think back to born of water and the Spirit. Ah, oh, yeah, right. A lot of people teach this is physical birth. It's not physical birth. What it is here is, is baptism in the Spirit. And if you study the text related to baptism, especially in the, in the Acts, what you're going to find repeatedly is that the coming of the Spirit of God into your life happens at your baptism. It's related to it. It's correlated with it. Sometimes a little bit before, sometimes a little bit after. Acts is kind of messy in terms of how God... God's kind of messy. I, I was sharing with someone this week. Uh, they were saying how... You know, they were trying to say this wasn't totally precise theologically. And I said, you know, sometimes our theology is much more precise than God is. <laughs> how God works. God, God can make things messy. And our theology tries to straighten it all out. But it doesn't work that way. And Acts is beautiful, but watch the number of times where baptism and the coming of the Holy Spirit are correlated. And laying on of hands usually is at the same moment by uh, an apostle or by a bishop. And I think you'll be convinced how deeply connected uh, new birth and the uh, filling of the Spirit are. The third truth, participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are not just looking back to what Jesus did for us and saying, ah, that has spiritual significance for me. Paul is adamant that when you are converted and when you come to that faith experience, you have participated with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Listen to his language. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You have participated in death and resurrection through your faith in Jesus Christ. Through your whole conversion and baptism experience, you have died and you have rose, risen again to walk in newness of life. And it's not just something you're looking back to historically. You're looking, back, you're looking to it as a reality that's still true and enduring in your own spiritual experience. You died with Christ. You've been risen with Christ. Therefore, walk in newness of life is the challenge of that text. Same thing with uh, Paul when he talks about the Eucharist in, in Corinthians where he says, don't you realize that the cup that we take and the bread that we eat, it's a partaking of Jesus Christ? You are receiving Christ. It's not just symbols of eating a little piece of bread and drinking a little cup. It is partaking of Jesus Christ himself. And the reality of that is, is much more deep than just a symbol that we somehow profess. Becoming part of the family of God, being initiated into the body of Christ. The text I give you is 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13. For in or by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And the physical and spiritual reality of baptism is that when you are baptized, you are placed into Jesus Christ. Spiritually, the Holy Spirit takes you and places you into Christ. I can't explain it to you any more than that. It's a mystery. But when you accept Christ, the Spirit of God takes you and places you into Christ. And Christ will one day deliver you to the Father. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. What? It's spiritual reality. That's not just flat theological truth or biblical statements. That is spiritual reality. Galatians 3 has a similar statement. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ, and you are all one in Christ, and you're all heirs according to promise, whether you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, 
You're all Abraham's offspring, and you're all heirs of the promises of God through your faith and through your baptism. And this is a beautiful passage relating that. One of the beautiful things about the New Covenant versus the Old Covenant, the people who participated in the initiatory rites of the Old Covenant were only males, right? Only males were circumcised. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Who is baptized in the New Covenant? All believers. Everybody. Men, women. So you have this language of adoption. Sometimes our language of the text says only male terms. I have Galatians 4, 4, uh, 4 and 6 here that says, uh, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, and we're adopted into the family. We, uh, he died for us so that we might receive adoption as sons because we are sons. God has placed His Spirit in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Adoption sometimes has the language of son and not of daughter. And my wife used to struggle with the idea as a, as a girl, a young girl, she used to fear, well, all this is about men. All this is about guys. What, what, what about, is there any hope for me, a girl? And the one text I can point out to you is, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians 6, where it says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and you shall be my sons and daughters, as both. And this new covenant is inclusive, right? Men and women are made one in, through baptism into Jesus Christ. The last item, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul said in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And the Holy Spirit seals us, and the Holy Spirit seals us with himself because he himself is the seal. And when we profess our faith in Christ through our conversion and our baptism, the Holy Spirit seals us, and it's like a king putting his signet ring upon a wax uh, envelope. He presses that down, and that envelope is marked as his, as his possession, and no one is to mess with that until it gets to the destination. And so you have this seal of the Holy Spirit upon us uh, through our conversion and baptism experience. Here's my application to you. Be baptized. I am baptized. Martin Luther was very adamant to say that, he didn't say, I was baptized. This, this is some historical event somewhere in the past. I am baptized. I am baptized. And when you think about the theological meaning of that, what it means is this is something that has a continual, residual, con uh, permanent effect upon your life as you move forward. I had a man in the church I pastored in Ohio who, I, I can't say he was the epitome of virtue, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I was talking to him one day and visiting him in his home, and he said, Pastor Carl, he said, let me tell you what keeps me from sinning. He said, he said do you know what keeps me from sinning? And I said, well, tell me, Mark, I'd really like to know. You know, I'd like to know what keeps him from sinning. He said, my baptism. I said, your baptism? He said, when I was baptized, I made a pledge to Jesus Christ and a vow to him that I would follow him and be his disciple. And every time I'm tempted to sin, I think about my baptism. I think about that vow. I think about that commitment I made. There's a passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 where Peter says that he talks about Noah and the ark and these six, pe six people being saved by the ark. Noah and his two sons and their, their wives. Uh, they were saved, eight people were saved through the ark. I said six. There were eight people saved. And he says, the like figure wherein even now baptism does save you. 
What? Baptism saves us? Yeah, he's saying it saves you. Not the washing away of filth from the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. The pledging of a good conscience toward God. When you have made that pledge and you've committed yourself to it and you keep your pledge, baptism will save your life. It will save you. When you're discouraged, think about your baptism. When you feel like quitting the faith, think about your baptism. When you're tempted, think about your baptism. Remember your baptism. You are baptized. And because you are baptized, you are born again. You're living in, the, in participants in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You're part of God's family. The Holy Spirit is in you, sealed you, and you are God's children. Be baptized. Let's pray. Father, seal in our hearts these truths. And may they not just be words that come into our ears and enter our brains, but may they be things that are sealed in our hearts. And may they be transformative of how we live our lives. And may the power of the gospel, the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit work in our pledges in such a way that even our baptismal commitment that we made would save our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.